Army platforms depend on software, and software has to run on sometimes old or limited hardware mounted aboard ground vehicles. At this week's Association of the U.S. Army Conference, I discuss what's going on with the commander of the Army's Communications and Electronics Command, Major General Robert Edmondson II. I'm a part of a team of 9,000 IT professionals distributed around the globe, and we are responsible for all of the sustainment, which is the sustainment operation of all of your command, control, communications, computers, information, surveillance, reconnaissance equipment. So you do software and hardware? We do both hardware and software, absolutely right. All right. And when you say sustainment, let's define that term. Right. That's, that's a great question. So when I think of sustainment, uh, I think of an Army operation. And so when I think of sustainment, uh, I think of the different classes of supply. And much like weapon systems, much like ammunition, uh, I literally, with the team, we consider both the hardware and the software components of all C5ISR how they need to be replenished, how they need to be prepared, uh, repaired, and how they need to be sustained over the long haul. We work anywhere from the defense industrial base uh, all the way into the foxhole. Got it. And that C5ISR, that used to be C2, then it was C3, then it's C4, now it's C5. And, and, and one day it's probably going to be something else because this is an example of how the Army is continuing to evolve. And frankly, CECOM, in response to how the Army is delivering the Army of 2030, designing the Army of 2040, uh, CECOM, that's a part of AMC, will continue to evolve over time. And uh, as you've already noted, uh, our acronym has changed over the years. Uh, at this point in time, uh, I, the, the synergy between hardware and software is probably no greater uh, than any point in my entire Army career than it is today. And to a much greater extent, it's fair to say that a lot of the CECOM software is embedded in the platforms, which creates a different type of integration challenge than the days when it was pretty much signal-based, all of this work. Right, absolutely. And uh, now when you look at all the different systems that we have, those systems are not designed to operate independently anymore. Those systems are designed to operate in an integrated fashion not just interoperable, but to be operate in an integrated fashion, which means that we need to be able to, as in the United States Army, and specifically CECOM over the long haul, synchronize the level of hardware with the level of software so that at the tip of the spear, at the point of need for the soldiers, the system works the way that it needs to work when called upon. Yeah, a lot of uh, publicity, a lot of talk has been about this replication program that the Defense Department announced, but they're talking mostly about aerial unmanned types of vehicles. But the Army has a uh, ongoing program and I think development of unmanned ground systems, which you don't hear as much about, but those have to operate in concert. The swarm idea, if you will, that's part of your software development thinking also. When we think about the entire network, uh, the entire network includes soldiers, uh, it includes unmanned capabilities. uh, And so to your point, When we need to integrate all of those systems, uh, it is the Army Materiel Command, the CECOM Enterprise, that has the right level of experts distributed around the globe, and that's extremely important, that they are distributed around the globe, embedded with uh, maneuver formations. At times, they are full-time distributed around the globe, living living on the ground, and they're the ones that are able to operate at a higher level. So if a soldier ever has a challenge, and this is extremely important, if a soldier ever has a challenge with any of the hardware or software, they know exactly where to reach. 
and that's reaching into the AMC Enterprise and reaching into Communications Electronics Command and reaching directly to some of the 9,000 experts that I had previously mentioned. But as an operational concept, I mean, the Army is thinking about interoperability of manned and unmanned ground vehicles such that an operation could, could have drone things on wheels or walking or whatever they might do we, we are that, that ab- all communicate as a unit. Yes, a- absolutely. The integration between manned and unmanned is absolutely something that the Army is working hard on. It's something that we completely understand. Uh, why not leverage uh, unma- an unmanned capability to perform an action that can be performed by an unmanned uh, platform? And that lend leaves the tasks that soldiers must perform to the soldiers, the living, breathing Americans that are the ones that we are here to, to support, the ones that we ask to uh, put their lives in harm's way at times. So we are absolutely aimed at decreasing their risk, using unmanned where appropriate, uh, and then again, leaving those ethical, moral decisions, as an example, to the humans. Right. Autonomy will never extend to shooting, for example, right. so far as we can plan right now. Right. We, we, that, that's a human decision. And that gets to the question of artificial intelligence and machine learning. That must be coming big time into CECOM. It, it absolutely is. And we are, uh, we are searching. There's a race for talent that's happening today. And so we have very smart hardware engineers. We have very smart software engineers. Uh, we, have, uh, we have educated our hardware and our software, and I'm going to come back to software uh, and, and focus a little bit more on them. Uh, we are educating our software experts uh, in, in agile ways of delivering software capabilities. We are enhancing our lab capabilities so that we can uh, roll out software at a faster rate. Uh, we are synchronizing that uh, rollout of hardware at a faster rate with the software that we are also are responsible for sustaining as an operation. Uh, and then when we start to talk a little bit more about uh, AI and ML, uh, that's where we are very excited. We're very interested. We're reaching out to industry. We're reaching to the local colleges and universities. We're taking a very close look at our duty descriptions and, quite frankly, determining who is it that we need to hire. What type of person do we need to bring into our organization that can continue to perform sustainment operations of hardware, software, AI, and ML? And talking about the workforce, you mentioned 9,000 people. How many are uniformed, how many are Army civilians, and what about contractor support? How does that all break down? Right, right. So of that 9,000, 92% of the 9,000 are civilians. And of the 92%, we have got about a 50-50 mix between contractors and Department of the Army civilians. And so the soldiers that we have in the organization are more senior in nature. They're the ones that we will uh, have been most recently in the field. We will bring them into the organization. We will leverage their talents so that we can continue to be forward-looking. And then we also can take good constructive criticism from the soldiers when they come into our organization. They give us advice as to how we can do business even better. And so, again, that allows us to operate in a more end-to-end fashion. So, in other words, you don't have uniforms coding in Python necessarily. That's civilian people. In our organization, we do not have soldiers coding in Python. I can't speak for Army Futures Command. I'll let them speak for themselves. But our soldiers today are not coding hands-on keyboard. And I was wondering about your connection or relationship with something like, say, Missile Command, which is very software-intensive, ground systems and networking and all of this. How do you interact with them? Do you have any part of what they do? We we absolutely do. We have a close uh, partnership with all of the product managers, with all of the product managers, the PEOs, and uh, we coordinate 
We have uh, formal lines of communication and informal lines of communication. So the systems that you're, that you're referencing, we have a direct responsibility in ensuring their sustainability over time. So we're involved in early in the acquisition cycle. We're involved early in the acquisition cycle from the perspective of our ability to sustain that equipment over time. And when I say sustain the equipment, I literally mean our ability to uh, perform sustainment operations uh, at the speed of war. Because the hardware, you know, has a long life cycle and it has to be ruggedized and so forth for the most part for Army platforms. And so I imagine a lot of the future software sustainment has to be, you have to ensure that it occurs in a way that can still be supported by hardware that might have been around a while. You're absolutely right. There is a, there is a, a dependency between hardware and software that cannot be lost. And that's part of our end-to-end way that we perform sustainment operations inside CECOM. Uh, the end-to-end, again, takes us from the very beginning of the development all the way to uh, how the system, the hardware and software, functions for the soldier uh, on the battlefield. And to your point, uh, the synchronization uh, of the hardware and the software is what we do inside Communications Electronics Command along with our partners uh, that uh, are in the PEO and the PM community. But the synchronization is critical. We cannot put ourselves in the position of having hardware that is not able to run the software. Conversely, we cannot allow software to outpace the hardware. And that's where we're responsible again. That 9,000 person workforce that I described a little bit earlier, a little bit earlier they do a tremendous job of synchronizing uh, Army hardware with Army software for the soldiers. Yeah, you don't throw out the software every couple of years and get a new iPhone, so to speak. That's this is stuff that has to be around a while. Right. And, and, and the risk tolerance associated with the difference between an iPhone and a <laughs> combat platform, right? We, we cannot assume that kind of risk at all. And what about the feedback loop, say, uh, of the field back to CECOM? Someone might have a new package that's... Uh, to update the operation of a tank. I'm just making this up. Well, you know what? We told it to turn one degree and it turned 1.1 degree. You have to reprogram something. So that... You have that, that feedback mechanism. We, we, we absolutely do. We receive the feedback two different ways. Uh, one is we'll receive the feedback from the PMs and they'll sometimes ask us to make modifications to hardware or modifications to software in response to feedback from the soldiers. But we also, as a part of that 9,000-person workforce, we have Department of the Army civilians and contractors that work for us on the ground with the soldiers uh, receiving that direct feedback, and they bring it directly into Communications Electronics Command. And so that uh, the information flow is not only from the PM to CECOM, but is from CECOM back to the PM. What's the E2E pipeline? The end-to-end pipeline has everything to do with our ability to be able to think not only at the headquarters and above level or at the lab and above level, but it is our ability to take ownership of the hardware and the software all the way into the foxhole uh, and to be responsible for the systems that we are sustaining, the systems that we are upgrading along the way to ensure that they are functional for the soldiers, the soldiers understand how to operate those systems. And so as an example, before we will issue a new piece of software, we've got a responsibility to write the technical manual that describes to the soldier, the user, what the new process is and what the new benefits are. And when you're thinking end-to-end, that means you're not stopping at the lab level alone. You're not stopping at the PhD level where we're putting hands on keyboard developing new, new types of software. But you're actually thinking about how you're going to implement all the way into the foxhole for the soldier. And to have that ownership 
really does get back to your earlier question about how do you receive feedback. You're going to receive a lot of feedback when you really take ownership uh, of your software in an end-to-end fashion. And if there's a bug or a glitch, you'll hear about it pretty quick. Absolutely. Absolutely we will. Major General Robert Edmondson II, commander of the Army's Communication and Electronics Command. There's more to the interview. Hear it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. And also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance, And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. 
And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, "Okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, 
I realized that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, 
that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.